The following is the Macular Degeneration Seminar presented at Braille Institute in Los Angeles on May 15, 2007. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Braille Institute's annual Macular Degeneration Seminar. We're so glad to have you all here today. My name is Carmen Applegren. I am Community Relations Coordinator here at Braille Institute. My job is public education, and part of that is putting on eye disease seminars throughout the year. And this is one of my favorite ones, macular degeneration research and living with macular degeneration. Braille Institute, if you're not aware, is a nonprofit organization, and we have direct services for people from age zero to over 100 years old throughout Southern California, our direct services. And uh, for those of you who aren't aware, we have classes that we offer here for uh, legally blind and severely visually impaired folks. You do not have to be legally blind to take our classes or to get most of our services at Braille Institute. So if you want to avail yourselves of those services, you can always call Braille Institute and uh, come on in and take some classes. We have low vision consultations that are free. All of our services are free. It is such a pleasure having you all here today. Our first speaker is Dr. Ron Gallimore from Retina Vitreous Associates, and I like to call him Dr. G. <laughs> he's been a good friend of mine for about 10 years, I think, now. Uh, he's spoken here many, many times. He is a great friend to Brill Institute. He is an internationally recognized clinician scientist and surgeon. He received his medical degree from U uh, University of California, San Francisco, and his residency at Jules Stein, UCLA. He's had academic positions at both Duke and UCLA. And today, he's going to talk to you about the latest research that he is uh, doing and about macular degeneration in general. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Ron Gallimore. Carmen's been a wonderful friend, and I want to thank the Braille Institute once again for inviting me here to speak today. I'm excited to see Carmen with her new guide dog. My aunt had a guide dog for 40 years, and she also had RP. And that actually reminds me of my childhood. When I was growing up, I learned that I had a family history of retinitis pigmentosa since I was dragged into the eye doctors, and I had to get this ERG test as a kid. And as I got older and went into practice, I realized I have a family history of macular degeneration as well. And I heard stories from family members of how they would go into the doctor's office with their macular degeneration and they'd be diagnosed in one eye and say, well, I'm sorry, you have wet macular degeneration in this eye. Let's cross our fingers and hope it doesn't happen to the other. I'll see you in two years. And things have changed dramatically in my 10 years of practice as a retina surgeon we now have a lot of things we can do for our patients with macular degeneration, and my goal today is to provide you guys with some new hope based on the new treatments that we have and to just kind of educate you about where we're at and what we're doing for our patients now. Well, as you all know, macular degeneration still is the leading cause of blindness in the United States and developed countries around the world. There are about 20 million or so people that have macular degeneration in this country, and it truly is still a silent epidemic. Your friends, your family members, people you had no idea might be affected or often affected by this disease, and sometimes they don't even understand what it is and what they could do to prevent it. So one of my hopes is that you will 
walk away today and be informed about what can be done, and you'll inform your friends and family members and give them hope for their problem. And we haven't had a perfect solution, but we have a lot more choices now than we ever did before. How many here have macular degeneration? Just about all of you. How many people have family members with macular degeneration? So about a third of you. So you can tell there's a pretty strong hereditary component to the disease, but there are other factors as well, and we're going to talk about some of those. So as you know, there are two kinds of macular degeneration. How many of you have the most common form, which is dry macular degeneration? Actually, about a third of you have the dry form. And that affects about 15% of the people that go blind from this disorder. So even though it's dry, and that's supposed to be the early stages of the disease, in some cases it can still lead to blindness. How many people have wet? More of you, about a third to two-thirds of you have wet macular degeneration. This affects 85% of the people that actually go blind from the disease. Well, there are a lot of things we can do for this in terms of kind of home cooking sort of stuff that can make a difference for you. So of those of you who have macular degeneration, how many are taking vitamins specifically for your eyes? All of you pretty much, but not all of you. There's about 10 or 15% of you that are not specifically taking eye vitamins. Well, there was a big study looking at eye vitamins, as you know, the age-related eye disease study, and the formula produced by Bausch and Lomb, Preservision, was utilized in that study and showed that there was about a 20% um, improvement in vision in patients that took this supplement and about 25% reduction in the rate of vision loss overall. For a subset of patients, those with intermediate to advanced macular degeneration. So if they had, you know, intermediate-sized drusen, which are ones that are not hard to miss when you examine the eye, if you have these little deposits underneath the retina, called drusen, that puts you into a higher risk group and the vitamins made a difference for you. Patients who had developed wet macular degeneration in the other eye, they also found a difference. But that's, those numbers are pretty impressive, but even more impressive are some of the dietary data and the habit data. So how many people have heard that green leafy vegetables, dark green leafy vegetables make a difference? So about 20% of you. Well, the dark green leafy vegetable diet, if you eat that more than twice a week, two or more times a week, reduces your risk of progression by 43%. So that dietary change is a bigger difference than even the vitamin supplements. So it's really important to cram that spinach salad down <laughs> at least twice a week. And uh, with enough um, salad dressing, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> now... There is a little controversy on the whole vitamin front, and vitamin E, which has been taken in megadoses for many years, has been studied by a number of scientists, and they've looked to see just how good the stuff is. And there were some funny data that started coming out that women, in certain cases, were having higher incidence of strokes and heart attacks and so forth on high-dose vitamin E. So there's a little controversy there. So depending on your history, you need to keep your medical doctor in the loop on the supplements you're taking. And if you're one of those vitamin fanatics, which I think is not necessarily a bad thing, but if you happen to be taking 400 of E in this and 200 in E in that and 200 E in here and there, and you're taking a lot of vitamin E, 400 or above is controversial, and you have a stroke history or heart history, it may be an issue. So you need to let your medical doctor know what you're taking, and someone's got to sit down and add up all those numbers and make sure that they're not at a toxic level. 
There's also a concern about beta-carotene. How many people have heard of beta-carotene causing an increased risk of cancer? And only a few of you. It's only in a subset of group of patients. Who is it that has an increased risk taking very high-dose beta-carotene? Smokers, right. So if you have a smoking history and you're taking these supplements, there is some controversy regarding the high-dose beta-carotene. Keep your medical doctor informed. The numbers are not that big, so if you increase the risk of, instead of having one or two people getting lung cancer, you get three or four people in a group of a 1,000, well, that sounds like a doubling of the risk. So it's still a controversial area, but there is data to suggest there is a potential problem with smokers, and most doctors advise patients with a smoking history to possibly take a supplement that doesn't have the high-dose beta-carotene. With that in mind, there's a new study in line called the Age-Related Eye Disease Study 2, ARIDS 2, and they're looking to see how important beta-carotene is in all of this supplement stuff. Because when they originally did the study, there was a study at the National Eye Institute that was doing a parallel study looking at lung cancer. And everyone's excited about antioxidants. They said, let's use beta-carotene to see if it reduces the risk of lung cancer. Well, in the end, the study had the opposite effect. Overall, there was an increased risk of lung cancer. But the ARIDS people said, okay, we can't get enough lutein, which is what they wanted. They wanted high concentration of lutein, which is an antioxidant that concentrates in the retina. And we were thinking that's probably the most important um, antioxidant, xanthophilic carotenoid. It's the class of the molecule. They said, well, let's do this study with beta-carotene because they're already doing it with the NIH cancer study. And so they did a parallel study. Well, now we don't know how important that is because beta-carotene is involved in other parallel pathways in the visual system, but maybe not so directly in the macular degenerative process as lutein would be. So now they're taking formulations that remove the beta-carotene and put lutein in place. And this is a study that's already started. We're recruiting in our group, and there are people around the country recruiting for this study to see if there's a difference. And it's one way to get your vitamins for free, I guess. You have to come in and do the study, but it does allow you to, to get your vitamins uh, covered. And you're randomized between different groups. Another big issue is the omega-3s. How many people have heard of omega-3s? <clears throat> Why? What do omega-3s come from? Fish, exactly. So people have known for years that people who eat a lot of fish don't seem to get so many eye problems. And it's the omega-3 fatty acids that probably make the big difference. So part of the ARIDS-2 studies to look at high doses of omega-3 fatty acids and to see whether or not they make a difference. Now, anytime you have this big giant study looking at these different treatments or different vitamins, there's always a handful of smaller studies that have already shown that there's some evidence that they may be beneficial. But as we know from the NIH study of beta-carotene and cancer, you got to do the study to get the answer. So it's important to participate in these studies so we truly know if these additional supplements make a difference. So diet-wise, you should be eating at least two courses of dark green leafy vegetables a week, two servings of fish a week, and red meat has some potential downsides to it as you get older especially. And so there is a recommended, recommended restriction of red meat to once a week. And the exact mechanisms of why red meat makes a difference or doesn't are controversial, but there are studies looking at people who have eaten a dose of red meat a week or less or, or, or the more than a serving a week, and there's a statistical difference, significant statistical difference up to a 
50% difference in terms of who goes on to get macular degeneration. And Joanne Seaden has done a lot of that uh, groundbreaking research in looking at diet and its correlation with macular degeneration. Now, on the clinical side and the research side, um, what are we doing for our dry macular degeneration patients? Well, there are some studies looking at eye drops. Not everyone tolerates the vitamin supplements uh, so well, and, and uh, there are potential risks and benefits for really high-dose supplements in the rest of the body for certain people. As a rule, there is not. For example, in the ARID study, we didn't see that increased risk in mortality and stroke taking the ARID supplement. But, for, but they didn't allow people who just had a stroke or just had a heart attack or just had some major medical condition into the study. Well, there may be a potential benefit of high-dose vitamins delivered through an eye drop. So there's a study looking at high-dose antioxidant drops placed on the eye and their effect on cataract, and now there's a study looking at macular degeneration. There looks to be evidence that it could make a difference. The other really exciting study, which hits both parts of eye disease that affect my family, are these growth factor implants that are placed inside the eye. Neurotech has a CNTF um, growth factor implant study looking at dry macular degeneration. It releases growth factors into the eye to keep these cells that are about to die from dying. And it's also being used for patients with retinitis pigmentosa. And the rather amazing thing about this study is that we're looking at patients who have pretty well, good vision to start with because we're trying to prevent them from getting worse. So a lot of times studies are working on patients with very poor vision. And um, sometimes it's harder to see a difference, but we're looking at patients who have good vision and we want to see them preserve their vision. And it's an exciting trial and, and it's already underway in, in our group. So what about patients with wet macular degeneration? If you have macular degeneration, you should take your vitamins, you should be doing your diet, um, you should be doing some other things, which we'll talk about later. What about those with wet macular degeneration? There were patients that I saw just two years ago that really I, I felt that I could not really help. And... I see some of those patients coming back with their other eye affected, and we have treatments that are improving their vision, restoring their vision, and keeping them functioning at a very high level. And I think this is all due to the work of Folkman and his growth factor research at Harvard. Judith Folkman has shown that vasoactive endothelial growth factor is the foundation for a lot of problems that occur in our bodies, including macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and cancer. And they all tie into the same factor. And vasoactive endothelial growth factor is released by the sick eye in a hope of bringing more oxygen and nutrients to the retina so that there's an improvement in the function of the retina in patients with dry macular degeneration. And these growth factor inhibitors block the growth of the blood vessels. They also stimulate resorption of the fluid and they're used almost indiscriminately now for many of the conditions we treat related to blindness. The first one that was approved by the FDA was what? Anybody have an idea? Those are both good comments, and they're both not right. <laughs> so Lucentis is the one that you really heard about. Kenalog was the one that we used a lot of. Kenalog is not approved for the, by the FDA for this purpose. Lucentis was approved, but it was approved later. So the first one, 
Avastin was approved for some other condition. It's still not FDA approved. The first one for eye condition was? Macugen, right. Macugen was the first drug approved, developed by iTech, a great company with a very exciting concept. Let's get a silver bullet for this disease. Let's attack the, the VEGF that is causing wet macular degeneration, and they have a product called an aptamer, which is not a protein, so it doesn't cause an immune reaction from the body, that attacks specifically the form of vasoactive endothelial growth factor that leads to abnormal blood vessel growth and leakage. And macugen was found to work to some degree on all classes of wet macular degeneration. There's different classes, and each class responded equally well to this treatment. Although the results were a little bit underwhelming, I mean, we didn't have big improvements in vision, and not everybody responded that well, and so it was a little bit frustrating, but it was something. And there are patients who have responded well, and and macugen may play a role in our continued care of patients in terms of maintenance therapy and so forth. The studies showed that to really benefit patients maximally, they need to get injections every six weeks for two years, and these are intraocular injections. So some of the risks include um, infection in the eye, which is 1 in 500, cataract if you accidentally hit the lens, which I never have, um, and, uh, you know, just the fear of getting an injection. So Lucentis was being studied, and there was a murmur in the air that this drug may be more effective than macogen. We were in the study, one of the leading uh, recruiters in the world for that study, and we, too, saw patients who were drying up and responding to treatment. We didn't know if they were getting treated or not treated, but we suspected that they were responding to treatment. And we were seeing patients have big improvements in vision, which we weren't, as a rule, seeing with macogen. But Lucentis, they did it right, but they did it long. It took a long time to do all the studies and get FDA approval. And in the meantime, another drug, which had already been approved by the FDA, was out there. She's asking about Visudine, and we'll touch on that. Visudine came before all of these. Visudine was another drug that acts through a different pathway to shut off the abnormal blood vessels. A dye is injected in the body. We activate it with light called a cold laser, and it causes a chemical reaction which shuts down the leakage from the abnormal blood vessels. And that's a very different mechanism of action from acting on the VEGF molecule, where we're actually binding the factor that causes the blood vessels to grow. But Visudine is making a comeback, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Visudine came before all of this. But again, it didn't make a huge difference for many patients uh, in terms of improving vision, and macugen seemed to work better across all subtypes rather than PDT work or Visudine works really well for classic subtypes, primarily in some of the earlier work. But Lucentis was being studied, and it hadn't been approved, and there was another drug that was actually the mother drug of Lucentis that had been approved by the FDA, but not for use in the eye. And that drug was Avastin, right. And Avastin was approved for use in the treatment of colon cancer. And eventually some other types of cancers, it's being used sometimes off-label, sometimes on-label, but it did have approval for use in cancer. And as I mentioned earlier, this VEGF factor is the same factor that plays a role in blood vessel growth in cancer and diabetic retinopathy. So initially, individuals were tried on systemic VEGF, similar to the cancer doses, and they found that it seemed to work. But VEGF, anti-VEGF drug, anti-VEGF antibody Avastin, placed in the circulation, had some bad side effects. There's increased risk of stroke and heart problems. And so 
Phil Rosenfeld at Miami said, well, you know, we've been injecting macogen in the eyeball. Let's just inject some Avastin. And he basically used the same concentration but and the same dose we used for macogen and just gave it a try, shot it in the eyeball of some patients, and it dried up the lesions. And he published a little brief report on that. And he got an IRB so that he could, internal review board would review his, you know, project before he went ahead and forged with these treatments and found a difference for patients. And this blew the door wide open for us because we now had a treatment that was cheap and effective, but not FDA approved. But do we have a history of using drugs in the eye that were not FDA approved? And this gentleman mentioned Kenalog, exactly. Kenalog was a drug we'd already injected thousands and thousands of patients with. We've caused plenty of cataracts and glaucoma, but we've also saved a lot of vision by using this drug. And Kenalog is not FDA approved. Medicare pays for its use, even though it's off-label. And I think Medicare pays for it because of one reason, because Kenalog is cheap. And so the same thing is held in place for Avastin. I think Medicare has now agreed to cover Avastin for the reason that it is cheap. And how does it compare in price to Lucentis? Well, you get different reports on what the cost is, but anywhere from, let's say, $100 for Avastin, including the cost of the drug and the storage and all the maintenance stuff related to Avastin, to $2,000-plus for Lucentis per injection. And not everybody has insurance, and not everybody has coverage, but because it works and because it's cheap, Medicare and a lot of the insurance providers, although most of the private insurance don't cover the actual drug itself, are covering the cost of the drugs. But not everybody is covering it. So Avastin seems to be very effective, but which is better? And that's a controversy. Lucentis was designed from Avastin. It is a engineered molecule that has a higher affinity or it's stronger binding against VEGF, so it should be more potent. And it's a smaller molecule, which means it should have better penetration into the eye. But it also may go away more quickly and maybe it gets into the body more easily. That's a little controversy. There's some data showing that Lucentis may increase the risk of stroke. There is a small number of patients who've had some strokes and there's some correlation. And the thought is maybe it gets into the systemic circulation easier than Avastin does. After thousands and thousands of Avastin injections, there are no strong data showing that it has any significant side effects, but a randomized controlled clinical study of Avastin has not been done, and a randomized controlled clinical trial of Lucentis has been done, and it has been proven to be the most effective drug that we have against wet macular degeneration. Um, do all patients respond the same? No. I had the father of a ophthalmologist who came in and had wet macular degeneration in both eyes, and the one eye still had very good vision. I've been maintaining him with um, Lucentis injections, in his case, um, for the past maybe eight months. And the other eye had been down for a couple of years, and it had a lot of leakage and swelling and had gotten worse over the last year and had been treated with other attempts, and he actually got treated with Lucentis with no response, with Avastin with no response, and then he got combination therapy, which I'm going to talk to in a minute about. And that combination actually knocked out all his leakage and made a difference for him. And so um, we don't know what's the best choice for any particular patient. Some patients respond well to Lucentis for a while and then stop responding. We put them on Avastin, they have a better response, vice versa. 
It could be just random chance because we're not doing a controlled study of that. So now we have these modern-day treatments, the anti-VEGF drugs, the Macugen, Avastin, and Lucentis. And based on the Lucentis trial, 95% of patients have a response. We've never seen that before with any of our treatments. For PDT, it was closer to 60 or 70% of patients overall had a response. And those patients were just stabilized and not improved. For Lucentis, 30 to 40% actually show an improvement. And with Avastin, based on our experience, which includes thousands and thousands of patients, um, we seem to see a pretty comparable effect, but a randomized study is now underway to determine if there is a difference between the two in terms of the outcomes for our patients. So should we give up on all these old choices, the Canalog, the Visudyne, the focal laser? We used to do the hot laser and destroy the retina with the hot laser and leave them with a blind spot if the blood vessel was underneath the center. Well, there are patients who keep recurring, they keep getting worse, even though we give them Lucentis, even though we give them Avastin, and a lot of them happen to be smokers. I've noticed smoking is a huge risk factor, 350% chance of progressive uh, macular degeneration or increased risk of getting macular degeneration with smoking. And short of stopping them smoking, which is sometimes impossible, um, we have to think of other options for these patients. And some patients, even the non-smokers, continue to progress. So several people around the country around the same time said, hey, let's do combination therapy. And they started doing PDT with Kenalog at one point. We've been doing that for years, and it seemed to be more effective than PDT, which is Visudyne, photodynamic therapy with Visudyne, seemed to be more effective than Visudyne alone. And now we're adding combinations of photodynamic therapy with Visudyne, Avastin or Lucentis or Macugen, and a steroid injection, either dexamethasone or Kenalog, which is triamcinolone acetate. And this one doctor's father, that was the only treatment that worked for him, was the triple therapy. And it's kind of a radical thing. You get the infusion of the dye for 20 minutes, 15 minutes, and then exposure to light. And then you get an injection into the eye of one drug, and then you get an injection into the eye of another drug, and then you come back in, and we check you two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, three months, six months. The advantage seems to be that the retreatments are go way down. There's one study published, now two studies, looking at combination therapy. The second study is not available in the United States, although it was done in the United States. Um, it's been published only in Europe so far. And there seems to be a reduction in the retreatment rate to about, instead of one every six weeks, to once every six months which is a huge difference. If, and for some of you, you tell me, my quality of life, you know, look, I know I'm losing my vision, but coming in every six weeks and waiting several hours for an injection, and then, um, you, know, I just, you know, I don't have much time. You tell me these things. I said, hey, man, have a positive attitude. And, you know, but if it was me, I'd be like, yeah, hey, I'd rather be surfing or swimming or doing something else than spending. I mean, you're a nice guy and all, but I'd rather be elsewhere with my time. So, that's one of the exciting things about that. One of the risks is that you're adding Visudyne, and Visudyne has a 1% to 4% rate of acute vision loss after treatment. seems to be transient. Most patients who experience that seem to get their vision back within a month or so, but not in all cases, and so that's an additional risk. You also have to stay out of the direct sunlight for five days after Visudyne. We are using dexamethasone instead of Kenalog. In many of these patients, dexamethasone is a shorter-acting steroid, and it doesn't tend to cause the secondary glaucoma and cataract that Kenalog can cause. And the idea is to attack the disease from different 
ways. Just like we attack cancer with different drugs, we use multiple drugs to attack cancer. We're using Visudine to shut down the blood vessels. We're using Kenalog or Dexamethasone to suppress the inflammation that can occur with the Visudine treatment because that can actually cause a burst of VEGF release. And we're using the anti-VEGF drug to actually act on the VEGF that's already being released in the eye on a longer-term basis. And it's pretty exciting. It's something I use when all the other things are not working or retreatment is not a great choice for the patient or the patient has already significantly decreased vision and, and um, you know, an acute change is not such an issue. We just want to get that thing to stop leaking. I want to touch briefly on other stuff to think about, and I want to leave the floor open for questions for the last 15 minutes. We already touched on the main habit that you can stop to reduce your risk of getting macular degeneration. What is that main habit? Smoking. And Laura Bush, I'm very proud of her. You know, we're not sure if she's still smoking in the closet or not, but <laughs> certainly she's on TV and, and promoting that we all stop smoking, and, and that's, that's really important, and, uh, and it's hard to do. I have patients who cannot do it. I have patients with emphysema and asthma, and they're going into the hospitals, and they're getting hooked up to respirators from time to time. They still go home and smoke. Maintaining a positive outlook. How many people have heard of The Secret, for example? No one watches Oprah. <laughs> Oprah seems to be my medical consultant these days. <clears throat> I learn everything through my wife, you know, what Oprah has been telling everybody. And if you want to be in touch with the women of today's world, you got to go do it through Oprah, it seems like. So I'll listen to my wife. But there is there, there are all kinds of things that are talking about how to change your approach to life. And patients who have cancer, there are now studies being done through the NIH looking at attitude and quality of life and perception of quality of life and how they affect longevity and people who have potentially terminal cancers and bad problems. And there is strong evidence that your body can heal itself. And when you say that, it's not a mumbo-jumbo thing. We know that there are hormones and factors released in the body when you have a good attitude or a bad attitude and so forth. And by maintaining a positive attitude, and if that means you know doing it through a little more exercise, doing it by picking better friends, or I don't know what it means, but um, we're all still trying to figure that out. But those of you who have that secret in terms of having a better attitude seem to get through problems easier and may actually treat your own disorders to some degree. So having a positive mental attitude or a PMA is really important. Exercise does something very important for the body. It, it improves your circulation. Excellent. And one of the problems with macular degeneration is not getting enough oxygen and nutrients to the back of the eye. And exercise actually affects a lot of things. It affects your attitude. It can treat depression. It can treat high blood pressure, and it can make a difference, I think, for your vision, too. So doing a little exercise each day, setting aside time, just like you do to eat, just like you do to watch TV. And not everyone can run and jump and so forth, but you can even do isometric things where you just squeeze your hands and squeeze your calves and squeeze every muscle in your body and then release it after 10 seconds. And I did that yesterday as part of this meditation exercise thing my wife inspired me to try, and I'm all sore today. All my muscles are sore, and I feel like I worked out, <clears throat> and hopefully I have a positive mental attitude. A big thing when you're outside, and some of you have them on inside, that will protect your eye from the potentially damaging energy of the blank are wearing your sunglasses. Excellent. So UV light does 
have radiation per se, and and uh, certain wavelengths, ultraviolet wavelengths, can damage the retina. And um, there's certain ones that may be better than others, but all sunglasses, even the 99 cent store sunglasses, have UV protection because the guys, wherever they're making these glasses, when they punch out those lenses. It's a lot more expensive to make the non-UV and the UV. They just mix it all into one batch, and they cut out the lenses. The ones with the fancier frames cost $100. The ones with the not-so-fancy frames may cost $0.99. Cents. So quality of lenses are not that different between glasses. Just wearing them makes a big difference. What can you do at home to make sure you don't have, you don't have a change? The thing that we need is you in our office as soon as you have a change. That gives us the best chance to give you the best result because we can usually keep your vision. A lot of times we can make it a bit better, but not always. If we get you as soon as you have a problem, we can usually keep your vision. So you need to monitor your vision with what? An Amsler grid. So you need the card with the lines on it shown right over here. You need to check it every day for just a moment, one eye at a time, make sure the lines are straight. If you see any crooked lines, they don't go away when you blink. You give your regular eye doctor a call, and he'll send you our way. And speaking of regular eye doctors, you need to see your general eye doctor every four to six months for a check. And if you already have some macular degeneration, you should be checked periodically because there are things that can happen that you may not realize are going on that may not affect the grid directly or early on, and he might pick something up. So in closing, I think... Uh, a lot of the research that is underway right now and our groups involved in about 20 plus studies at macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, retinitis pigmentosa, and other disorders. And we work with foundations like the Foundation Fighting Blindness, and you're going to hear from uh, Tim Schoen in just a moment about research. I've kind of left a lot of the research out because he's going to cover it today. And I think we're, as a result, now able to provide the best care for patients and provide hope for all of our patients as a group, the retina community, and it's an exciting time to be practicing. Thank you for your attention, and I'll take any questions. My name is Richard Stark, and I had an amazing thing happen yesterday. I saw my doctor, who is very well known, who I've seen over the last three years. I have wet in both eyes, and it's been deteriorating. Yesterday, he told me they were now dry. Is this possible? Yes, we use that term. The question is, he was diagnosed with wet macular degeneration, and he was just told that he has dry macular degeneration now. Everyone starts out with dry macular degeneration. The abnormal blood vessels that grow and start to leak, that is called wet macular degeneration. Then we treat you, and the leaking blood vessels dry up. And when the leakage has stopped, we will tell you, you are now dry. And that's the terminology we use, and sometimes it's a little confusing. You don't go back to having never had wet macular degeneration. It just means that the wet macular degeneration is now dry. There's no more leakage, and that's a very exciting thing that it happened to you, and I'm delighted that you're able to report that. Hi, I'm Connie Campbell, and because I've had uh, a lot of damage to my eyes and not too much vision left, I recommended the vitamins to my brother, and he said that uh, after taking them for a while, there has, he became extremely, extremely light sensitive, and he went to his doctor, and she said to stop taking them. And so I've had a lot of sensitivity to light, and I was wondering if uh, you've heard of anyone else having that problem because of the vitamins. Well, I have not, as a rule, seen patients coming in with a complaint of light sensitivity from vitamins. I see over 10,000 patient visits a year, 
and it's not a complaint I see. But I will tell you that vitamins can affect different people in different ways. And, um, you know, beta-carotene or high-dose retinoic acid can dry your skin. It's used to treat, um, treat the acne, for example. And if you're taking a supplement that has really high doses of vitamin A, theoretically it could dry your skin and dry your eyes and cause some light sensitivity. Um, not a common complaint that I ever have attributed to the vitamins, but it's an interesting comment. And for each person, their response to vitamins may be different. But the data in terms of preserving vision are excellent. Now, your brother, on the other hand, if your brother doesn't meet the criteria for taking these high-dose vitamins and, you know, he's a relatively younger person, then I don't think they're for everybody to jump on taking these high-dose vitamins. These are patients that are older. They have less absorption, so they're giving these mega doses to get them into the system. And if you're a young, healthy patient, then probably taking a multivitamin a day, like Centrum Silver for a guy, which doesn't have iron and is maybe safer for the heart or one of the generic brands of that particular vitamin, may be safer than jumping on a high-dose multivitamin, especially if you don't have a formal diagnosis of high-risk dry macular degeneration. Norm Lawrence, and I've had uh, just about everything that you've mentioned so far, including the combo. And on October 4th, uh, he gave me a, a shot of the steroid. And I, I was blind for about six weeks, and uh, then it gradually dissipated, and I'm still, I've got a heavy screen or veil that floats back and forth and cobwebs and so forth and it's been seven months ago and what are my prospects for that stuff going away or is there some way to dissipate it? So the question is what can I do about all the cobwebs I now have after getting a steroid injection months ago? These cobwebs can occur from the steroid medication itself because it's an opaque white substance that can cloud up the eye usually does go away in most people by that time, but not in everybody. Um, in some patients, there are reports of some inflammation caused by the steroid itself, and that can lead some to some inflammation in the eye and, and debris floating around, which can last for many months but usually goes away. My greatest concern is whether or not you have a tear in the retina or something like that causing more floaters and, and that film. So if they're not going away, make sure your doctor is aware and you ask him specifically that question. Um, and uh, and don't give up. Sometimes you need to be conti continue your treatment, even though you may think things aren't that great right now. They could get worse if you don't continue to get the care. So keep your follow-up appointments and make sure your doctors answer your questions directly. That's probably the one of the best take-home messages I can give all you who have questions. Make sure your eye doctor knows you have a question because it's very common. I end up seeing second opinions and so forth, and they say, well, my doctor didn't answer this and tell me this and tell me, well, did you ask him that specific question? Because I don't always, you know, talk about that specific thing to my patients. No, I said, why not? Well, I kind of was nervous. And come in with your list of questions. He'll knock them out. He'll answer your questions, and it'll improve your care because he'll know what you're concerned about, and it'll improve your rapport with your doctor. Um, I have um, MD wet type on the right eye. Is it safe to have cataract surgery on my left eye? There's a loaded question. <laughs> so she has wet macular degeneration in her right eye. Is it safe to have cataract surgery on the left eye? Well, the timing of cataract surgery is when it's interfering with, with your ability to do the things you need to do in your life. And if you're at that point and your cataract is, quote, visually significant, in other words, by removing the cataract, your doctor expects your vision to improve, 
and in turn it could affect your quality of life, it's reasonable and appropriate to consider cataract surgery. So assuming you're at that stage, then you should consider cataract surgery. Now the next question is, is it going to increase your risk of macular degeneration? And that's very controversial. There are publications supporting both sides. One suggesting that there's no increased risk and some suggesting there may be increased risk. I personally feel that anything that causes inflammation in the body can increase your risk of getting macular degeneration or inflammation in the eye because all the factors that stimulate blood vessel growth are associated with inflammation. So I still recommend that my patients get cataract surgery, but I watch them very closely. I recommend they have anti-inflammatory drops maybe for a more prolonged time after the surgery. There are some doctors that even suggest getting an injection in that good eye before surgery. I'm not one of them. That's not FDA approved. It's not standard of care. Um, but you just need to be careful to monitor your vision, and if you have a problem, you report immediately and you get it treated. Now, the fact that there are studies that are pretty big studies showing that overall they don't see a difference in some cases argues that the risk is probably very small. You know, so with or with, and I've seen plenty of patients get cataract surgery in one eye, they come back three months and say, oh, I got macular degeneration and it's wet, but it's not in the eye that had the cataract surgery, it's the other eye. And so you say, okay, well, it doesn't seem like the cataract surgery was an issue for this patient. So if there's a difference, it's probably small, but anything that causes inflammation theoretically could cause or stimulate blood vessel growth. So just be monitored carefully and uh, let your doctor be aware of your concerns and have surgery when it's interfering with your life and it's going to improve your quality of life. I'm Dr. Mary Cote. I'm the ophthalmologist for visual impaired services at the VA. And I have a question. Many of my patients there have been smokers for many years, and they've stopped. What do you tell them about the vitamins and the length of time that they've stopped smoking? That's an excellent question. So we know that taking high dose of beta-carotene may increase your risk of lung cancer. That's what the data suggests. What do you do for people who stopped smoking 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 5 years ago? When is it okay? My personal belief is that if you have a very strong smoking history, it increases your risk of lung cancer. And if you have an increased risk of lung cancer, it's going to stay with you for, they say, 10 years. Um, I, you know, I think that after 10 years, it's probably not a huge difference. So I don't feel too badly about patients taking the high-dose beta-carotene after 10 years. On the other hand, beta-carotene um, is of questionable value. Probably lutein is better. So there are products out there that have lutein but no beta-carotene. So as a rule, I do recommend patients take a supplement without the beta-carotene if they ever had a strong smoking history, and instead of using the beta-carotene, use the lutein, because the science suggests that that's probably a better product for you anyways. Thank you so much once again for your time and your patience. Now we are going to hear from Dr. Tim Shane. He is the Director of um, Research Development at the Foundation Fighting Blindness, which is a great organization. They fund research. They are, he can tell you all about it. They do a great, great job. Please welcome, oh, first I want to tell you, we had our retinitis pigmentosa seminar in November that Dr. Shane uh, spoke at. He was so darn good. We invited him back here to talk about macular degeneration and what Foundation Fighting Blindness is doing. Please welcome Dr. Shane. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Pleasure to come back to L.A. I live in uh, Fort Lauderdale, which uh, is close to Miami, which was just rated number one in road rage. And it was uh, interesting to see out here that uh, L.A. is number four. So we do have some sim similar things in common. Uh, first of all, I am not a medical doctor. I have a Ph.D. I've spent most of my uh, life in a research laboratory. So if you have any medical questions, uh, I ask you to address Dr. Gallimore, who's still in the back of the room there uh, later. Um, what I'm going to talk to you about today is uh, basically uh, what's happening sort of behind the scenes in terms of developing new treatments for age-related macular degeneration. The Foundation Fighting Blindness has been around for about 35 years, and uh, we started out as the Retinitis Pigmentosa Foundation. We changed our name about 15 years ago or so, and uh, right now about 45% of our funds are spent on research to find treatments and cures for macular degeneration. So as you already heard, there's basically uh, two different forms of macular degeneration. There's the dry form and the wet form. You can even t take a step further back than that. Uh, macular degeneration can be divided into the juvenile form and the age-related form. Now, juvenile is basically the same as the dry form of, of AMD. And uh, I'm particularly interested in that because one form of the juvenile form is called Stargardt disease, very similar to dry AMD. And uh, I'm, I'm particularly interested in this form because my wife happens to have it. Um, and we're actually, there, there's a lot of things that we're learning between the different diseases, between retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and macular degeneration. And I'll tell you a little bit about uh, how one disease is helping us learn more about how to treat others in a second. Um, so what's really happening right now, you've heard uh, Dr. Gallimore mentioned, uh, right now we have three FDA-approved or authorized treatments for the wet form of macular degeneration. Uh, Lucentis is out there, Macugen, before that, uh, photodynamic therapy. There are many companies that are, are actually moving into the scene from the cancer field, as was mentioned, that have uh, new compounds that may be just as good uh, if not better than Lucentis, although the bar has been raised very high. And what they're really focusing on are actually looking at ways to deliver these drugs less invasively, for example, through eye drops, uh, through implants, for example. And some companies that we're working with are even using developing pills. And so that's the, the hope there. Uh, one company that we've been working with in Gaithersburg called Genvec uh, is using a uh, technique called gene therapy. Now, what is gene therapy? Gene therapy is essentially using a virus to carry a gene into the cells of your body. Now, the viruses are specially engineered so they don't cause the flu or the cold, and you can put different genes into them. Now, the gene that Genvec is using is something called pigment epithelial-derived factor. And I, I hate to throw these acronyms at you, <laughs> Uh, there's a certain, or alphabet soup, as we say, uh, but pigment epithelial-derived factor, or PEDF, is a natural protein that's produced by your retina. It's produced by the cells in your retina. Actually, um, your retina is kind of like an upside-down layer cake. There's lots of different layers on it. And at the very bottom, there's a single cell layer called the retinal pigment epithelium. You've heard the name epithelium, referring to skin. This epithelium supports the retina and provides oxygen and nutrients to your rod cells and your cone cells, and it does one more thing. The pigment epithelium, every night when you go to sleep, the very tips of your rod cells and your cone cells are chewed off by these pigment epithelium. They're like little Pac-Men. 
And one of the theories in dry AMD is throughout the life, these cells have to chew and chew and chew, and eventually they get tired and waste products may build up. You've heard the word drusen. These bodies of, of, of proteinaceous lipid material that accumulates beneath the retinal pigment epithelium. So this company, basically, they're using a virus to deliver a protein that's made from these retinal pigment epithelia. It's called PEDF. And this factor has found to block these abnormal blood vessels that grow. The thing is, we don't know how it acts. You've heard about vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF. Most of the companies now are targeting the VEGF system. But, you know, mother, within Mother Nature, there's a lot of redundancy. It's, it's very complex. And as we know more, we realize how much we don't know. And so the hope is that in the future, um, as Dr. Gallimore mentioned, we'll be able to use some of these combinatorial treatments to not just hit one pathway, but multiple pathways. Uh, there's another company that we're working with in London called Oxford Biomedica. And they're also developing a gene therapy treatment for uh, the wet form of age-related macular degeneration. Now, they're using a special virus called a lentivirus. And these viruses, once they get into a cell, once they get into the nucleus, they stay there forever. And so the idea that uh, with the Oxford Biomedica treatment is that you would need one treatment and basically you would be done with it. Now, the Oxford Biomedica virus is delivering actually two proteins, something called endostatin and angiostatin. And these are proteins that also block these abnormal blood vessels that grow beneath the eye. So uh, there, are, I could stand here and talk for another half hour on other uh, companies that are developing treatments for wet. That seems to be where the focus is, although now, and as Dr. Gallimore mentioned, 90 percent, 85 to 90 percent of all age-related macular degeneration is of the dry form. And so we're beginning to see the heads of the big pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer and Novartis, are now beginning to think, gosh, we have to go after dry AMD. And uh, that's what I'm actually going to talk to you uh, next about some experimental treatments that are, are being developed. Uh, Dr. Gallimore is actually in his, his group, um, is actually with uh, Dr. Boyer, is actually involved in a clinical trial with a company called Neurotech, which, as he mentioned, has a tiny little capsule that is placed into your eye. It's placed off to the side of your eye so it doesn't affect your vision. And within this capsule are cells and the cells are making a factor, as he mentioned, called CNTF, or ciliary neurotrophic factor, more alphabet soup. If you want a copy of my talk, I can give it to you, email it to you, or print a copy uh, later. But interestingly, this factor uh, has been found to keep cells alive and healthy in several different models uh, of retinitis pigmentosa animal models. And uh, really now, we don't have very good models, animal models, of the uh, dry form of age-related macular degeneration. For the wet form, it's pretty easy. Uh, uh, scientists can use lasers and burn holes through the retina, and basically these blood vessels will, will grow within the uh, animal models, and there's a number of different animal models available. But, but for the dry form, we really don't have any good animal models, and uh, the best ones we have right now are these retinitis pigmentosa models. And so we're really excited that Neurotech is now moving into a phase two study to see whether CNTF within this little capsule will slow the progression of a specific form of dry AMD called geographic atrophy. Uh, they're also conducting the trial um, uh, for retinitis pigmentosa well, as well. And uh, real quickly, um, to get a drug to the market, it has to go through three phases. 
First of all, you have to show the FDA that it's safe. So all drugs have to go through what's called a phase one study. If you're in a phase one study, basically they're just making sure that the, that the drug doesn't cause inflammation in your eye, that your eyeball doesn't fall out, uh, that you don't have systemic problems. Once the safety has been demonstrated, then you can move to phase two, which is basically to show that the drug is, has an effect, has a treatment effect. And sometimes in a phase two, they'll use several different doses to try to actually nail down the correct dose to use. And then finally, when you get to phase three, you've expanded your study. Uh, they're very large studies. Several hundred people are in them. And again, you're looking for uh, uh, to find out whether or not the drug works. So um, I want to talk to you about another company that's developing a treatment for dry AMD. And uh, we've heard a lot of good things about vitamins. And uh, there may be one vitamin in case that might be questionable. Now, for people with retinitis pigmentosa, several of our clinicians, researchers, have shown that vitamin A supplementation, vitamin A palmitate, can actually slow the progression of retinitis pigmentosa. And this is very exciting news. Now, what's good for the goose is not always good for the gander. I should point out that within your rod cells and your cone cells, the uh, protein that basically responds to light, it's called opsin. Now, to, to form the light-responding molecule, opsin has to combine with vitamin A. It combines with vitamin A and forms rhodopsin. That's the light-sensitive molecule. When a photon of light hits your photoreceptor cell, it changes shape and starts an electrochemical signal. It gets all the way back to your brain. Now, what happens is after light hits the rhodopsin, it breaks apart. And the vitamin A, part of this vitamin A, it turns out is toxic. It forms something called all-transretinal. Now, we all heard formaldehyde is a bad thing. It's actually, this molecule is an al has aldehyde properties. It actually has to be pumped out of the cell, has to be pumped out of the photoreceptor cell, where it's detoxified uh, in the inner photoreceptor matrix, or basically outside the cell. Now, interestingly, one of our researchers right here at UCLA, Dr. Gabe Travis, was studying the protein that pumps this toxic vitamin A byproduct out of your cell. And the protein turns out to be uh, important in individuals that have Stargardt disease because if you have Stargardt disease, this protein does not pump the toxic molecule out of the cell. And what happens at night then, when you go to sleep, the tips of your photoreceptors are chewed off by the retinal pigment epithelium and they're essentially poisoned by eating this poison toxic uh, material. Now, this was first demonstrated in uh, a Stargardt mouse model where they were able to knock the gene out. Uh, later, when they began to look at Stargardt patients, they realized that these patients were accumulating this toxic molecule. And even more recently, surprisingly, in a certain percentage of individuals with dry AMD, it looks as though this toxic molecule is also accumulating. So. There's a company called Sirion that's actually starting a phase two trial right now with a drug called phenretinide, which actually blocks the uptake of vitamin A. Now, you might think that's a bad thing, but we have plenty of vitamin A, and it doesn't block all of the vitamin A. But what it does do, it slows down the production of this toxic molecule. So they're right now, the drug is already tested uh, for use in cancer, where they were trying to use it to turn cancer cells into normal cells. It didn't work. But the safety uh, of the drug has been established, and now we're uh, going to find out whether it will be useful for treating some forms of dry AMD. 
So to move right along, um, another interesting story. Uh, it's been known for over a thousand years. Uh, the Chinese have uh, used extracts from uh, uh, the uh, gallbladders of bears to uh, treat neurodegenerative disease. Now, this is true. <laughs> and it's, it sounds kind of crazy, um, but uh, they've, they've used these extracts, and if you go on the Internet and, and look into it, you'll see that there's a black market for bear bile, <laughs> bear gallbladders. Well, as it turns out, there was a researcher at University of Minnesota who was actually studying the natural sources of drugs and started isolating uh, out of the uh, bile a component, and, and again, it's a, an acronym I'll give you, called TERSO. Now, TERSO is a bile salt um, that has neuroprotective activity, so it's able to keep cells alive. And Dr. Steer first tried it in an animal model for Huntington disease. So it's a fatal neurodegenerative disease. One of our researchers at Emory, Jeff Boatwright, got wind of this and said, well, if it works in Huntington, maybe I can try it in some of my RP models. And lo and behold, he tried it in two different RP models, and it greatly slowed down the rate of photoreceptor cell death. Uh, there's a company that's working behind this now, and they're interested in developing this further, not only for retinitis pigmentosa, but also for the dry form of macular degeneration. Um, there's another company that we're working with now, and uh, there's an interesting fact that uh, as we get older, um, in terms of our uh, susceptibility for age-related macular degeneration, women uh, turn, out, turn out to have about uh, twice the, uh, the amount of age-related macular degeneration than men. Now, part of that's probably due, they, they live longer than us, but um, it's been known for a long time that estrogen has some neuroprotective activities. Furthermore, there are several studies that show that postmenopausal women um, who are not on estrogen have an increased risk. Now, there's probably other studies that contradict this, so I wouldn't go out and start taking estrogen. Um, but what I want to say is that there's a company actually in San Diego that we're working with that has an estrogen-like molecule, which we've shown in two different models of retinitis pigmentosa to, again, slow photoreceptor cell death. Now, the advantage of, of these small molecules, TERSO and the estrogen uh, molecule, is that uh, being a small molecule, they're not proteins like the Neurotech CNTF that I mentioned, and they possibly could be delivered through eye drops or through an intraocular implant, and, and maybe you'd have to go back once every three years for a treatment. And that's really where we're trying to get to. Um, there's, there's another interesting um, paradox. People with retinitis pigmentosa are sort of the opposites of people with macular degeneration. They lose their peripheral retina first. But the, the, the really terrible thing about retinitis pigmentosa is that you don't just lose your peripheral retina. My wife is fine. Uh, the other day, actually, she uh, had to qualify for uh, transportation uh, uh, services down there. She can still see a little bit. She can use a magnifier in large print. But uh, the, the really horrible thing about RP is that you, you basically... You, you have a vision that becomes increasingly constricted until finally you're looking through a straw and it's snuffed out. So you lose your macular vision. That's the last thing to go, which is, as you know, your macular vision is where your highest visual acuity is, seeing faces, reading, watching TV. And uh, But this doesn't occur in, in macular degeneration. People that lose their macular, they don't lose the peripheral retina. And, of course, that allows people with macular degeneration to use their peripheral retina uh, with magnifiers and, and large print. They can actually read off to the side. 
So what is it about RP that causes the macula to die? Well, one of our scientists, uh, Dr. José Sahel, a French researcher in Paris, found that the rod cells are actually making a factor, and it's called rod-derived, another long word for you, cone viability factor, RDCVF. And uh, there's now been a company, uh, let me take a step back, he showed that when they administered this factor to some of the RP models, rat models, this is all done in the laboratory, it was able to keep the cone cells alive. Now, the problem with working with mice and rats is that they don't have a macula. Only primates have a macula, humans and, and monkeys. And so, um, and we don't have any good monkey models uh, specifically for, for macular generation or retinitis pigmentosa. So right now, uh, the company is working on developing this RDCVF for testing in a clinical trial to see if it, it will keep the macular cone cells alive in people with AMD. Well, th that's pretty much it in terms of uh, exciting treatments that I have for you today. There's, I was just thinking, if you lose all of your vision, really, uh, the, and, and people will come up and say, my vision's completely gone, mainly these are people with retinitis pigmentosa, there's really two answers that you can give them in terms of possible solutions. One, you, you could give them an artificial retina. And there's a group right here in L.A., second site that the Foundation Fighting Blindness is working with, that's developed an artificial retinal chip. Now, this chip actually sits on the surface of the retina and contacts the output cells, the ganglion cells. Your photoreceptor cells are at the bottom, and light passes all the way through the retina, hits these cells, and then goes back out to the, to the ganglion cells. The ganglion cells then have axons that form your optic nerve, that big nerve that goes back from your eye to the brain. And the second sight device actually impinges right on top of the ganglion cells, and the company has just recently developed a 60-electrode uh, implant. So there's actually an, an 8x8 array, 64, and they're using four of the electrodes for... Uh, uh, input and output processing. But it's very exciting that they're now moving into a, a, a large clinical study. It would be considered a phase two clinical study to see if this device could be useful for restoring vision. Surprisingly, this device is being put right onto the macula individuals. And your macula, again, one interesting thing about the macula is you have a one-to-one -one connection with one photoreceptor cell to one intermediate neuron to a ganglion cell. That's the area of highest visual acuity. So this could represent a possible uh, restoration of vision for individuals that have lost all sight. The other hope is, is stem cells. And uh, stem cells have much promise, and there's a lot of hype about stem cells and certainly it gets into ethical issues. First of all, you don't have to get stem cells from embryos. Stem cells can come from adult tissues. And uh, the Foundation Fighting Blindness is funding research in this area. And quite recently, several of our scientists published a paper that showed that they were able to identify a stem cell that had the capability of differentiating into a photoreceptor-like cell. We're still stuck with the problem of getting the stem cell in the right place and getting it to differentiate in a de degenerating retina and then make the appropriate synaptic connections. It has to reestablish connections and then function. But there is a lot of progress that's being made, and I want to thank you all for inviting me today. I want to thank you for your support. Keep seeing your doctors. Uh, get the Foundation Fighting Blindness newsletter uh, if you haven't signed up for it. 
and uh, try to support research if you can, because it's really the future for, for all of us, for your children and grandchildren. Thank you very much. We're going to be taking questions now. Uh, I'm Sylvia Shepard, and can you address the, quote, outlook, unquote, uh, for someone who has had scarred retina from the um, hot whatever treatment, Sure. Uh, and I've also had the Lucentia treatment. So right. what can... Right. So, so what are, you know, again, I'm not a clinician, but um, I would actually like to ask Dr. Gallimore uh, and, and oh, some of Dr. my Gallimore, clinician maybe. friends are wondering um, whether or not in the next 10 years the laser treatment will be phased out because I've talked to so many constituents that have gone and had laser treatment and have lost macular vision because of it. That's a very invasive therapy. And there's a big difference between the laser treatment and treatment with these um, proteins and antibodies and factors that block the growth factors. Two very different treatments. One is invasive, causes damage, the laser. The injections of Lucentis do not cause any damage to the retina. So that's a big difference. In terms of restoring vision, once photoreceptor cells, cells in your retina, like the brain, do not divide. Once you lose these cells, they're gone forever. Now, um, as I mentioned, the retinal chip might be a way to restore vision or, or a stem cell, but once you've lost these photoreceptor cells, uh, basically the only way you could restore functional vision would be to replace them with another cell or an artificial retina. In my eye, that's good. I have black floaters. I looked at a white thing that I have the black floaters in there. I don't know right. if that's what that's happening. Well, floaters actually, I, you know, and, and I, I should point out that I spent 15 years at the National Eye Institute working in ophthalmic pathology laboratory. So <laughs> even though I'm a basic research scientist, I've heard a lot of medicine and, and I, but, uh, as you age, what happens is your vitreous is this, uh, jello-like body that sits behind your lens and actually helps to keep your retina attached. And as you age, the vitreous begins to break down, as does everything else in your body as you age. And, and what happens is the collagen and some of the proteoglycans and uh, uh, glycoproteins actually, um, as the vitreous begins to shrink, um, the liquid component increases. And sometimes you will have a piece of these uh, little proteins, collagenous proteins, um, that actually uh, will... Are called floaters that will float into your vision, and uh, not surprisingly, as you age, the uh, basically there's an increase in your chance of having a retinal detachment. If you get in an auto accident and hit your head, most of you aren't heavyweight boxers, so you don't have to worry. But still, even with uh, uh, not doing anything at all, you can have a retinal detachment. So yeah, floaters normally, uh, if you don't have to mess with the eye, you don't want to do do surgery. Hello, my name is Barbara. Uh, 27 years ago, I developed glaucoma. No one in my family has it. And in, since December 1st of this year, I developed macular very acutely. I can't read anything in print unless it's very large. Do you have any suggestions for that situation? Well, first, um, do you have the dry form or the wet form? Okay. Um, I, I don't know of any link between glaucoma and uh, age-related macular degeneration in terms of genetics. Um, 
There is uh, what, what we do know now, first from the studies that Dr. Seddon at Harvard uh, uh, Research supported, is that there is a clear genetic link with um, with uh, age-related macular degeneration. In other words, if, if you have it, there's a good chance that your other family members and children grant home. But in terms of the dry AMD, uh, right now the only treatments available are the nutritional treatments that, that were mentioned, the antioxidants, uh, Occuvite from the uh, ARIDS, age-related eye disease study one. Uh, there is the other, if you have the geographic atrophy form of dry AMD, you would probably qualify for the Serion trial, and you could c contact the foundation for information on that trial. We, that's the other reason. If you stay in touch with us, we're basically uh, on the top of any new trials that are coming out, and we actually have a clinical trials webpage and, and information. But right now, for dry AMD, really the only treatment are, um, you know, uh, the nutritional uh, the nutritional formulation uh, that was uh, uh, shown to be effective at reducing uh, by 25% the uh, a progression from early AMD to the more severe uh, later stages of AMD. My question is that uh, you mentioned something about uh, that if they did some kind of a laser, uh, because I had the same thing with a cataract, that um, went into all uh, these spots and everything, and a lot of these floaters. Mm -hmm. And then it looked like there was a uh, brown fungus coming in after that. And uh, now they want to go in and do some of that, uh, that you say, the laser. Yeah, yeah laser. Yeah. Yes. The energy of the laser is deposited on the back of the lens. Let me point out, the laser does not hit the retina. So they adjust the energy of that laser so that it kills the cells that are growing on the back of the lens. Oh, so it, it so wouldn't be it just, detrimental? It doesn't hurt the retina. It just basically kills those cells growing on the back of your lens. Oh. Okay, so here we have a question. Uh, the uh, laser causes scars, but does the Kenalog treatment cause scars also? No, the, the, the Kenalog treatment uh, does not cause any scarring. Uh, that's basically a, uh, a steroid that's used to quiet the, uh, settle down the immune system. And it's thought maybe to have some neuroprotective uh, activity. We're actually uh, looking at a very similar steroid called fluocinolone acetonide that's used in macular edema that occurs uh, in, in AMD patients as well as RP. And at Arvo, uh, actually I was at a big meeting last week, uh, where 10,000 scientists and clinicians came to present data, one of the uh, clinician scientists presented data showing that this steroid uh, not only relieved the edema, but had neuroprotective activity in a, an RP rat model. So um, Kenalog does not cause, should not cause a scarring. A, a, website, a website indicates that canola oil contributes to retinitis, and to glaucoma. Would you care to comment on that? I don't have any information that canola, that's a bit surprising since I would think that the uh, canola oil is high in omega-3 unsaturated fatty acids, which actually just yesterday in there was a news uh, release about the uh, beneficial effects of uh, DHA. So one of the things I tell people when I go out is you may hear uh, Dr. Gallimore mentioned, uh, somebody asked a question about a vitamin, Paul Harvey's vitamin formulation. You'll have people come, come to you or through radio or through a uh, newspaper or a magazine ad and claim to have a treatment for these diseases. 
you need to ask two questions. Number one, have they published any data in a peer-reviewed scientific journal? And I'm not talking about some little comic, you know, thing that they produced, but a regular scientific journal. And number two, have they conducted an FDA-authorized or FDA-monitored study? If they can't, then really the, the warning flag should go off. So just keep that in mind. We have a question here. Larry Headley. Uh, have, do you know of any uh, trials or research that they're doing on stem cells that would uh, involve uh, optic nerve damage or receptor damage in the brain? Uh, so the question is, uh, clinical trials now using stem cells for optic nerve damage? Uh, I don't know of any for optic nerve damage, um, but there is uh, there is a clinical trial that should be starting shortly by a company called Centacore, Johnson Johnson Company, that has a stem cell line derived from umbilical cord. And so basically the umbilical cord and placenta is discarded, and they're hoping to inject this beneath the retina, these cells, and the hope is that these cells will actually interdigitate between the sick and dying photoreceptor cells, help to structurally support the retina, and also release neuroprotective factors. The cells, however, do not turn into photoreceptor cells, which is the holy grail, which we're trying to get to. In terms of optic nerve, if you've damaged, there, there is a group uh, that we've provided some support, University of Utah, Richard Norman, is looking into developing chips that they can put into the cortex. So what happens if you've lost your, your output cells, the ganglion or optic nerve? Uh, then essentially you have to go to the visual cortex. And there actually are groups working on developing chips to implant in the visual cortex. There's a very, it's a very strong research group at the University of Utah that's working on that. And I'd be happy to give you more information. Sure. Yeah. Yes, you've discussed some of the biology of the eye and the sight mechanism and all. Can you point us to some references for those of us that aren't uh, trained in biology? Oh, sure. Actually, um, uh, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has some nice articles where this is condensed into understandable information. Um, I can pr get those to you. Um, basically, I I'll give you my card later, and, and uh, I can send you the science articles. <laughs> but our, uh, our uh, communications people are very good at trying to, 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 to make it understandable. And uh, the, the, the things I was talking about, vitamin A at UCLA, um, uh, Dean Bach is actually uh, a scientist that's uh, done some of the early studies with the retinal pigment epithelium. And he uh, has not published the data yet, but they fed vitamin A to normal mice as well as the Stargardt mice. And they find an increase in this toxic metabolite uh, called A2E uh, that's present in, uh, in both of these. So okay. this is going to, you know, uh, you know, there are some questions about why the Na National Institute used vitamin A in their in their early formulation, and some of the responses I've heard is that well, third world countries vitamin A is a problem, vitamin A deficiency, and uh, there wasn't any scientific rationale for putting vitamin A in that arid's formulation. So. Um, we don't know the whole story yet, but uh, uh, certainly I, I, I can get you that some of the information. Could you enlighten us on the nuclear proton therapy that's being done at some of the leading hospitals? And okay. Um, so uh, nuclear proton therapy has been used to treat the wet form of macular degeneration. 
And uh, some people may have heard x-ray therapy is another uh, form that's used. Um, the results from the studies that I'm uh, familiar with have not clearly shown a beneficial treatment effect from these treatments. So that's using a um, high-energy particle, actually a low-energy particle that actually hits the uh, growing blood vessels and, uh, in a sense, cauterizes them. It's, it's much less invasive than laser therapy. Laser therapy is very damaging. And so um, it's, it's, uh, it's still mixed whether that, uh, that treatment uh, could be useful for wet AMD. But I've actually seen mixed results, certainly not as strong as the results with Lucentis. Uh, Lucentis has really raised the bar in terms of treatments for wet AMD. It's about three to four times better than Macugen, so clinicians are probably going to stop using Macugen, and it's uh, 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 maybe five to ten times better than uh, photodynamic therapy. And it's not invasive. It's uh, not damaging to, to the retina. So, Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your support. We hope you've enjoyed our Macular Degeneration Seminar from May 15, 2007. If you have any questions, please feel free to call 1-800-BRAILLE. That's 1-800-272-4553. Remember to ask about our many free programs and services, like our audiobooks, low vision consultations, and the many classes that we offer. Or visit our website at www.brailleinstitute.org.